All right, Sir Eric, uh, welcome to this week's episode of the Herbal Hour. This week, we are going to be talking about history. So you're a history teacher, and I've been interested in history for quite some time as well. And specifically, where our interest comes together is how an understanding of history can lead us to a better understanding of ourselves, of our lives, of our own minds, and how it can actually lead to healing of ancestral traumas, how it can lead us to having direction, meaning in our lives, how to learn from other people's mistakes and how to not repeat the same errors. So can you tell uh, our audience a little bit about the work that you do within the sphere of history? Sure, Bogdan, and thank you so much for having me again. It's an honor as always. Um, so I teach primarily ninth and 10th grade uh, history, which is global history in the state of New York. Ninth grade focuses on basically the beginning from ancient Mesopotamia in Egypt all the way up to the Enlightenment era, which is about 1700, 1750 uh, CE or AD in Europe. And then Global History 2 in 10th grade picks up where the Global 1 left off. And you go all the way pretty much to modern times, even with like the Arab Spring in the Middle East. So I get to teach it all, which is great. Um, I am kind of anxious to maybe teach U.S. history one day as well, but I probably I would say I enjoy the ancient stuff, the global stuff much more. Uh, the kids do, I think, in some way also, because it allows them to get a whole scope uh, of different cultures, introduce yourself to different cultures, different achievements from throughout uh, the world over time. American history is just one very small snapshot. Uh, so I think that ultimately I'm very lucky to be teaching what I teach. I'm also uh, a very proud uh, Greek American. And so I think I'm very, very blessed to be able to teach about Greek history every year. Uh, I spend a lot of time on democracy, on, especially on philosophy. I teach a philosophy course at my school as well. I just spent a lot of time in Plato's Republic, uh, particularly the cave allegory. So yeah, uh, it's, it's a wonderful occupation to have. And I think I knew I wanted to be a history teacher pretty much early on in high school. My own history teachers very much influenced me. Uh, they just looked like they were having the time of their lives. And I thought that's what I want to do with my life. Mm. I was thinking about this a little bit. And history, in a sense, is really about the stories of humanity and the stories of how the human psyche expresses itself on a collective stage. And even the reporting of history tells a story because you choose certain events to talk about in a certain way rather than others, which actually shows us more about ourselves than the actual events. Now, I had a, a question for you. So something that I've noticed that's kind of peculiar myself is I find myself very specifically drawn to Greek mythology. And I wonder if there's some kind of ancestral memory or something along those lines where if you're more from within a Western tradition, the Western traditions of mythology and history seem to have more of a pull. Whereas we both studied a lot of Eastern philosophy back in our day and, and still do to some extent. When I read their mythologies, they didn't really have the same pull, like the uh, philosophical ideas of awareness, mindfulness, love, those things had a pull. But something about the Greek gods specifically, what do, you, what do you think that is? What is the appealing aspect of that to the Western minds? Well, I, that's a great question because that is most likely the case. Um, and I think Carl Jung would have a lot to say about this as well, that we are very much pulled 
with the Western mindset. It's almost dangerous, he would uh, say, to go out too far into the East and lose that sense of uh, ego that we've worked so hard to cultivate out here in the West, um, perhaps to our detriment. But uh, I would say that, and I'm going to use your background, uh, ethnic background as an example here, because the Ukrainians were heavily influenced by uh, the Greek culture. And we teach this every year, um, how basically during the Byzantine Empire, which was the remnants of the Roman Empire, but basically with the Greek culture, Greek language, they, the Ukrainians, the, the Rus people, the Kievan Rus, right, the, the origins of the Russian culture as well, those people uh, were heavily influenced by the, the Byzantines who basically spread the Christian religion up north. So I think there is a, you know, there's a connection there that you can look at as well, linguistically, culturally, uh, through our, our religious beliefs. And yes, th- those beliefs do, uh, they're much later than the, the Greek gods uh, and the Greek mythology, those tales. But I still think that there's that, that, that tie that kind of binds us all together. Now, uh, to get back to the Greek gods, in particular the, myth- the mythological stories, there are so many of them uh, that we could look at, and they've been broken down throughout history, especially during the Romantic era. The Germans did a great job of this. Uh, Nietzsche looks at this uh, in depth, and I think a lot of a lot of plays, uh, even Shakespearean plays, play on a lot of these motifs from the Greek myths. So I think they just represent our our highly developed sense of self and identity out uh, in the West here. So there's a story for every, uh, you know, basically any sort of uh, situation a human can find themselves getting into, right? I think everyone likes to make jokes about Zeus and his philandering and whatnot, but, you know, there are other great stories. And in philosophy, for instance, Sisyphus, the myth of Sisyphus, is a very timely, uh, timeless tale that we come back to over and over again, kind of representing the futile uh, endeavors of humanity and how we think we're doing something really great with our time here on earth, but are we just rolling a rock up a hill so it can roll back down again, right? Mm-hmm. Can uh, you, is there uh, any purpose to this? elaborate a little bit more on the myth of uh, Sisyphus who, for people who haven't heard about it? Sure. And I'm not, this is, uh, I don't know that much about it. I kind of do know the general fact of this. I know your friend Jake, uh, loves this myth in mm-hmm. particular. Um, but yeah, basically there's, uh, there's this guy named Sisyphus and he is essentially doomed to have to bring this very heavy boulder up a hill uh, his entire life. And then once he gets there, he pretty much he rolls back down. He has to do it again. It, I tie it in with, um, oh man, I'm forgetting the name of this guy. You could probably help me out right now. Uh, the Prometheus? guy who gets his liver. Yes, thank you, Prometheus. The guy with his liver getting plucked out because he gave the fire of the gods to uh, humanity. So there are these motifs of, of uh, eternal punishment uh, to people that either help humans or either people that maybe like relate to uh, the the nature of, of what it means to be human. Mm. All right. So I want to uh, share a quote from Carl Jung, who are going to be talking a good amount. Uh, so for anyone who doesn't know, he was a very uh, well-known psychologist during the early 1900s. The ideas of archetypes, the shadow, the collective unconscious, they basically come from him. A lot of the ideas within the new age movements come from his original writings. Uh, and he had a very uh, interesting view on history and what the, the deeper psychological meaning of history was. So he says, who has fully realized that history is not contained in thick books, but lives in our very blood. And the unconscious is the unwritten history of mankind from time unrecorded. So the question is, how is history something that we're, that's living through us, 
that's influencing us and that we're creating? And what can we learn from history to keep it from repeating itself? There's a lot of questions there. So you just tackle whichever one you want. Yeah, that's loaded. That's loaded, Bogdan. But that is, uh, that is the task at hand, especially when we deal with history, because a lot of kids always are, are wondering, what is the point of this? Why are we learning this? Uh, is there a greater purpose? And, and, you know, a lot of people fall back to, well, we don't want to repeat history. We don't want to repeat history. There are things that we can learn from history that are good, and they can teach us that we do want to repeat some of these things. Um, I'm trying to think for an example, when we come up with new technologies, right? So the advent of farming, the, the agricultural revolution, those are very beneficial, uh, advancements for humanity. Now I do start my year off with this, uh, ninth grade, and I do like to play devil's advocate and ask the kids, maybe were we better off, uh, in the paleolithic era when we were nomadic hunter gatherers, because there is evidence of this. There's an article by Jared Diamond. Um, and he wrote a, a bunch of books about this also. If people are interested in looking into Jared Diamond uh, and his theory that perhaps the greatest mistake humanity ever made was to become sedentary, to settle and become an agricultural-based society. Because perhaps, uh, well, actually, when you look at the, different, the dietary, uh, basically, makeup of, of a hunter-gatherer society, a nomadic society versus a society that is sedentary and farming, uh, we get a lot more nutrients from the hunting and gathering nomadic society uh, or that lifestyle, rather, because uh, you're getting nuts and berries, you are getting uh, meat and protein-based diet, it's more like a keto sort of diet, and you're getting a lot more carbs uh, with the agricultural-based diet. And what they found is that basically people's life expectancies got shorter uh, when, we, when we switched to the agricultural-based society. Now we are more protected from animals when we're settled. Uh, there definitely are benefits to the settled society, but uh, those, some of those facts regarding our diet, those are unavoidable. Even our teeth become less healthy when we live in an agricultural society. Um, so I always think it's great to start the year off that way to kind of show kids that whatever you think history is, uh, you might learn that maybe it's not what you expected. Uh, I think it's really good to challenge misconceptions in history. I think that's the best way to learn is to look at different perspectives and not just say, these are the facts, this is what happened, and this is what we need to know about it. Because that's not, to me, that's not genuine, that's not a genuine practice of history where we're actually examining. And what do you do when you try to learn about history? You examine artifacts, right? You examine mm -hmm. old texts. Um, you can't just let one person read it and tell the story and that's it. And you write it in pen or in ink. Uh, history should be written in pencil. You need to erase it at times. Things, uh, new evidence will show itself very much like in the medical field uh, or in the scientific field. And it's very important that we allow for those changes to uh, manifest themselves Otherwise, we will repeat the same mistakes of the past and mm. uh, kind of having a monolithic view of what is and what isn't. Yeah, and I, I believe there's a lot that we can learn from history that actually applies to us now. Um, like, for example, the thing we were just speaking about is talking about how a new technology, although it seems like it will lead to good, can have unforeseen negative uh, consequences. And that's kind of... Um, a repeated motif through history is people thought this was for the better and it actually led to this, that, and this. Like for example, colonialization. I mean, the Native American people were essentially decimated by disease. And that's a common uh, thread through the history of medicine is when people who have not been in contact come into contact 
they spread all sorts of unimaginable things. And uh, we live in a incredibly interconnected world now. So with everything that's going on, as everyone's very well aware, it's very hard to get away from that fact because it's almost like we're not even really nations anymore because everything is so cosmopolitan. Everyone's traveling around from this to that country that what affects one country affects the whole world, which is as we're seeing. So what do you think in these times history can teach us about how to react to a mass scenario as is occurring now with, you know, all the quarantines and canceling of events and this, this effort to contain this contagion, which is well-intentioned, but what can be some of the negative detriments to acting in such a way, or what could be some of the positive things that we don't expect? Excellent question, Bogdan, and I'm glad we jumped into this. Um, there are two things I'd like to say, and I'll start first with, I'll go into a historical example of a time when a, a plague hit. Um, and people did not foresee the plague hitting. This was something that occurred because of other actions that were taken prior for other reasons, other uh, necessary measures that were taken because of a war. So during the Peloponnesian War, roughly fought between about 430 BC into 403 BCE, um, between the Greeks, uh, well, it's between different Greek city-states, the Athenians and the Spartans. And uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, by the way, great game. Don't mean to uh, advertise out of nowhere here. <laughs> but that game actually puts you in between into that war, which is awesome because you get to learn about the uh, times uh, that uh, they're playing through. During that time period, in some ways, it was a golden age. You had some of the greatest thinkers alive born or living during that time. Hippocrates, the father of medicine. Socrates, uh, the father of philosophy, Western philosophy in many ways. Um, these are all people that are living during that time, which, you know, you think of war. Wars are, you know, terrible times. But even during a war, there can be an opportunity for growth, innovation, uh, new ideas and beliefs, and, and what have you. So during this war, uh, when it began, you basically have Athens, which is a, a trading empire, uh, very strong navy, uh, not so great at maybe land uh, fighting. And Sparta is obviously, as we know, if anyone's seen 300, for instance, they base their entire society off of that. They're a militaristic society. From the age of seven young boys, they are taken from their mothers, right? Uh, and they probably wanted to be because they were taught from a young age, this is what you're going to do. This is your future. You're going to uh, you know, be the first uh, body of defense, line of defense against any invaders, against our perfect society of Sparta. And Hitler loved Sparta. He thought he was very... Uh, he admired Sparta greatly. So these young boys are taken to a, a camp called the Agoge, where they would train. And overall, uh, some of them, a lot of these boys would not make it through the first few years. They were given a cloak, uh, basically told they needed to steal to survive through these first few years. And if you got caught stealing, even though you were basically told to do that, you would be whipped mercilessly, perhaps even you know, to your death. So it was basically survival of the fittest. And we don't want anyone who's potentially weak to have to be the people that are, are you know, representing our city-state or, or fighting for our city-state. So the Athenians obviously were worried about fighting these people because they have been training all their lives. They are super soldiers, uh, almost robotic, if you will. These people, they, they wanted to die on the battlefield. There was no higher honor than to die in the battlefield like the samurai or Vikings, perhaps, and other cultures that we see. So the Athenians were wise to this. And they, they were, you know, obviously the Athenians, we think of them as the philosophers, um, the playwrights. These are, you know, Euripides lived during this time as well. 
uh, Aristophanes, some of the greatest playwrights that we know about today, uh, lived during these time periods, uh, the golden age of Athens, right? So Pericles, the leader of Athens at the time, great, uh, you know, leader of democracy, really uh, opened up democracy to the masses in Athens. And uh, basically he decided that a great strategy would be had to not directly face the Spartans head on. And they would use their naval uh, acuity, their naval uh, powers to their advantage here. Essentially, um, they would wall themselves off behind the walls of Athens so they would never have to face the Spartans head on. Uh, and they would use their navy, their superior navy, in order to uh, be able to get resources into the city so they could survive a siege for however long they needed to. Okay, and it was a smart strategy at the outset of the war. It made sense for the Athenians not to play into the advantage, the great advantage that the Spartans had over them. Uh, and so the war plays on for, you know, about, like I said, 27 to 30 years long. And towards, I guess, uh, in the middle way of the, of the war, um, there are battles being fought outside of Greece and Sicily. Uh, there are battles being fought all over Greece, but never in Athens, particularly the city is walled off. Eventually, uh, much to the uh, chagrin of Pericles and, and uh, his generals and the strat uh, strat uh, sorry, strategic people. Uh, in Greek, they call them strategos, general. So my, my dual language there is kind of messing me up there. Uh, <laughs> st statisticians, that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, they faced a big problem. And the problem was that because people were not allowed to leave the city and people were walled in for this extended period of time, a great plague struck. Uh, historians like to call it the, uh, perhaps an early form of typhoid fever. And there are great accounts of this plague. Thucydides in particular really, uh, and he has a whole history of the Peloponnesian War if anyone's interested in looking into this more hand. And it is, it is extensive. He is considered the first historian in some ways, even better than Herodotus. He's much more scientific. He gives you direct quotes of different, uh, you know, leaders and city-states, uh, representatives throughout Athens uh, and throughout the Greek world at the time. He tells us that basically this thing is, is a disaster. Uh, a great majority of the population of Athens passes due to this plague. Uh, Pericles himself, the great you know, mastermind of this plan to not fight the Spartans, dies in this plague. And ultimately, this plague really does lead to the downfall of the Athenians. So this great idea that really should have led to their victory long term ends up leading to their downfall. And so I think that's a very important part of history here. That's how we can learn from history is we might want to be careful with our recommendations uh, in the face of certain, you know, uh, circumstances that we're facing. So right now, telling people to stay inside uh, to avoid public places is probably prudent for where we are in the begin very beginning of the onset mm. of this uh, pandemic, especially, uh, you know, localized in the United States. However, you don't want people, especially this time of year, uh, to stay inside too long because outside is where all the, essentially, the tools are to perhaps fight this, uh, you know, novel virus. Um, you want to go outside, you want to get sunlight, you want to breathe in fresh air, you want to get exercise, you don't want to stay at home, uh, it, it basically brooding in, in your, you know, I, I don't want to say misery, but perhaps in our uh, uncertainty and our anxieties too long. And so I think it's very important right now that we listen, you know, to the authorities, because in some ways, uh, we don't want to be, you don't want to find out what happens if you don't at this early stage. But we also 
you know, want to take all the necessary measures to put ourselves in a position to keep our immune system strong. Uh, I read an article the other day that was talking about how the Spanish flu in 1918, mm -hmm. which was a very, you know, deadly flu. It killed a lot of young people. People 1825 were the majority of people who were killed during this pandemic. Um, a lot of they, they did a study where the people who were treated uh, during this 1918 pandemic, if they were treated outside in the sunlight and fresh air, they were they got better much quicker. Statistically, they, they were able to heal and, and not uh, succumb to this illness versus people who were sequestered indoors uh, being treated. Uh, in the same way, in some ways, the same medicine and the same uh, tactics as were the people outside. So I think it's important to take those lessons from the past. Like even, you know, they're peppered throughout the past, these lessons. You take one from one time period, you take another one from another, you kind of merge them together. You can't look at a single event in history isolated. They're all connected to each other. And I think that's where the power of history to teach us how to heal comes from. Uh, you can read one book about history. You can read a thousand books about history. You can spit off facts and be on Jeopardy and win, you know, a million dollars. But it means nothing if you can't take these facts and kind of put them together and create a real perspective, a real um, narrative of history that is all-encompassing. Uh, and that, that really will teach people uh, all there is to know about ourselves and about uh, where we're going and about uh, what our ancestors knew or did not know to their detriment or to their benefit in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you brought up some uh, really interesting points about the fact that the temporary response seems very warranted to spread. But uh, something we were talking about previously is what are the long-term implications of a strategy of, you were mentioning a quarantine that could potentially be lasting for many months or even longer. What are the effects of this kind of mentality on us throughout that after this outbreak passes, things might never be the same. I mean, for example, during the aftermath of uh, September 11th, there was a lot of legislature that was passed that although intention to lead to the capture of terrorists and things like that ended up changing the political sphere and changing laws and regulations in ways that are still affecting us today. Uh, for example, Snowden revealed a lot of the things that were ultimately the fruits of this mass hysteria that followed and the legislation that was kind of um, brought through at the same time. And I think that that's, a, that's an important thing to bring in about all of this is when hysteria sets in, a lot of decisions can be made that might affect us for a very long time and not in a necessarily beneficial way. It's like that classic... Um, struggle between liberty and security, right? Yes. It's like, what is, what amount of intervention in everyday life is warranted to, to come together to prevent the spread of something like this? Um, and that's the thing about history is like a lot of very well-intentioned efforts, they have disastrous fruit that are very hard to predict. Um, so, and another aspect too, um, like you said, being outside, I mean, that's super helpful. And the question is what, what aspect of being in a state of fear? I mean, that just destroys your immune system, everything that we uh, understand about how stress impacts us. So when you're very stressed out, 
your cortisol levels obviously increase and that directly suppresses your immune response. So if you're indoors, not getting fresh air, you're afraid to go outside, afraid to contact people, what effect does that have not only on mental health, what effect does that have on just how strong our immune system can be resilient to the passing through of an outbreak such as this? Um, and obviously there's a lot of information coming out that the certain virus doesn't hold up very well in sunlight. Mm-hmm. And um, everyone understands that, you know, being trapped indoors is not really good for your mental well-being. It's not really uh, good for your immune system. So we're, we're seeing something very interesting happening right before our eyes. And I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to see what the long-term implications of this will be. For example, um, schools have been closing. My clinic closed for uh, a week. And it's interesting too, because if these things are closing, then who's there to help the people that actually need the help? It's like, it's, it's, everything is, is up in the air. And I think a lot of people are very scared and unsure of, of what to do. Um, and hopefully all we can do is just keep our, keep our cool, do what we need to do to, to make it through this and to cooperate and make sure that, you know, this all passes over uh, smoothly without too much panic. Well, I think Bogdan, uh, I mean, you break up a lot of great points there. And um, I guess I'm going to focus on the fact that because people, the people in power don't know how we would react to a situation like this. I think that's why you're seeing so much fear being pushed because they don't, the people, if, if we just disregard what they're saying, uh, you know, and go out and, and, and mingle with each other, uh, you know, that could lead to social unrest. So, we, you know, I, I, I think about the Hong Kong protests or the Yellow Vest movement in Paris, that these things were ongoing for months before this. Only something like this could actually uh, get those movements to act actually slow down or just uh, dissipate entirely. So there are, like you said, benefits uh, or or just long-term repercussions for what we're dealing with here. Um, And and those are the more negative ones. I want to get more to back to, you said about school closures, because obviously, you know, I'm in a state now where my school is also closed for at least two weeks. Um, It seems like it will be for at least the month of April as well, because we are talking about long-term remote learning. Um, And my district in particular is still trying to figure out what that looks like and how that is. I obviously have an idea, you know, because ultimately as individuals, we have to, you know, figure things out for ourselves. We can't just wait for the authorities to necessarily tell us what to do and how to do it. But um, I, 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 when I first started teaching, I was amazed at how dependent uh, our society is upon public education, especially children. They they get their meals from the school. They'll get their breakfast and their lunch from the school. And I I never realized to what extent that uh, our society is dependent upon public education for literally you know allowing people to be able to go to work because their kids are at school for the day. It's almost like glorified daycare in some way. Now mm-hmm. you know I don't want to make it seem that way, but maybe when they're younger in elementary school, it is a little more like that. But you know hopefully in middle school, high school, we're giving the kids an intensive an intensive enough education that it's worth it for them to go out during the day and they will learn something worthwhile that they could take with them, you know, wherever they go on their, their life paths. So I think right now it is unprecedented. You know, we want to provide students with uh, not just education, 
in their time away from school, but also the means to uh, a healthy nutritional diet on top of that. So it's almost like a social net, a social safety net is the education system in our society. So this is, this is unprecedented. We are only in the beginning phases of this, and we really don't know where this will, where we're going to even going to be in a week, let alone a month to six months. Uh, in the last week, we've all been hit with these uh, re- realities now that, that are, you know, we're being told they're going to be with us for a very long time. And so to see how people are responding in just the last few hours versus how we will be responding, uh, you know, months from now, particularly, there is no way for us to really know uh, about this. And I think this is a really much a uh, and experiments uh, to see how humans react to a situation like this. Now, we just talked before how uh, this is obviously, you know, plagues and and, and holding people in, uh, you know, or quarantines rather, keeping people into a place uh, for an extended period of time to stop the spread of an illness is not unprecedented. These are things that have happened throughout history. Um, there are bigger plagues, you know, there are plagues that will probably be much more deadly than this one when we look back at this, when it's all said and done. Uh, but still, it's, it's, it's a scary thing to, to be told you have to, you know, can't leave your house, you have to stay home, you have to, you know, uh, can't go out by, you know, even see people that you love, stay away from your loved ones, you could be infecting them. It makes us all feel in a sense that we are, I don't want to say that we're deadly, but that we could potentially be, uh, you know, have a negative effect on people, even people that we love that we want to help. So even now, like our instinct is to go out to help people, help the elderly, right? Help the children. But now we're so worried, like, oh my God, I might have this bug. I don't want to help anyone. I think helping myself means staying home and just like crawling up into a hole and closing my eyes. You know what I mean? And just like totally melting down. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what it comes into. You're talking about the mental state, the morale of the people right now. The morale is very low. And what are we, what have we based our morale on? for all these years. It's hard to say, um, you know, collectively, what have we based our morale on? Sports, for sure, right? Um, and, you know, and, and listen, uh, you know, I, I do enjoy, I enjoy playing sports. I enjoy watching sporting events. Honestly, when, you know, uh, basketball and baseball is being delayed, all, all these things are being postponed. I was, uh, you know, unhappy with that because I do, it's, it's an easy, it's a casual joy. It's something that we can uh, enjoy you know, without having to think too much about, put it on the background. Oh, life is normal. Everything's going so great. You know, oh, something bad happened today. Well, you know, I'll watch the Nick game tonight. It is what it is. You know, I'll kind of blow off some steam. And now people don't have that anymore. And and that's, it is people don't know what to do with themselves. All the sports gamblers, people are joking. They're going to bet on the weather now because there's nothing <laughs> else to bet on, right? It's like, oh, this, this, is, the, this is end of the world. It is. It's, it's, it's incredible. But, um, you know, that is something that we're, we're coping with. They're only in the beginning stages of. People are starting to, are going to have to go back to some of those natural things that we used to do, like spend some time outside, turn off the TV, perhaps. I'm very lucky to be able to play music. I know you, you, you know, play music as well. Guitar, piano, singing. We can all sing. We can all chant. Uh, that is something that, you know, even if you're not a good singer, I'm, I'm maybe at best a decent singer. I still do it to calm myself down, to kind of open up my vocal cords. It's good for your thyroid, right? I mean, I'm not trying to give medical advice here, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm just thinking you stimulate, you know, certain glands when you do that. 
So I think it's important right now more than ever that we really try to figure out what we're going to do with our time here and we start doing it. We don't spend too much time just thinking about how many Netflix shows can I binge in the next week and a half because that's that's the old way of doing things. We are not that's not going to cut it anymore. We need to figure out a new way. We're we've been blessed with the opportunity now to figure out a new way to do these things. And I think, you know, at first it's going to be painful like all growth, but it's really going to pay off in the in the long run. You're we're already seeing, uh, you know, I'm going long here, but we're already seeing po- pollution going down in places that have shut down. In China, in particular, the first two months of the pandemic, there, you look at a map, uh, or rather, a uh, a uh, satellite image of, of ch- over China and the pollution has gone down exponentially. So there are some unforeseen benefits perhaps to the shutting down of society um, that we are not privy to just yet. So it's very important to not panic uh, as much as we're being told to panic. And yet we're also being told not to panic at the same time by the same people. And we're all just, <laughs> our minds are spinning, right? It's, it's, it's incredible to see how this is going on, but Ultimately, uh, I think this is a, an opportunity for growth. Uh, I know that's very much what the people in charge like to do is create a crisis so that they can create, you know, like you said, 9-11 was just a, a precursor to plans that mm. were being hatched much longer uh, before the, the actual event happened. There's the project for the New American Century document. I just love referencing that because everyone should take a look at that. It was written in 1997 by Mr. Cheney, by some of his friends that were a part of the Bush administration. And they had planned for what they call multi-theater wars. Um, uh, basically a way for America to have a purpose to continue imperializing the world into the next century uh, because we needed a new enemy, right? Communism is done. The war on drugs, you know, was kind of petering out. So we needed a new war, we needed a war on terror, and that uh, was very convenient for uh, not just, you know, it's not just Republicans or Bush. There's a lot of people that stood to gain from this long-term uh, strategy of, uh, of a conquest imperialization across the world. It's not just about oil. There's a lot more that goes into it than just uh, the oil memes on Facebook. It's very deep. Uh, the military industrial complex, whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of uh, benefit, the petrodollar mm-hmm. itself also. Um, but I digress. So, Yeah, ahead. it brings up the point that during times of um, fear and uncertainty that we need to keep our cool so that there isn't worse consequences than we could have foreseen. And I think this is a great place to bring in the idea that one of the things that we can learn from history, one of the things that we can apply in our lives and in our health, in our psychic health especially, is that things that happen outside of us, they cause us to respond in a certain way. And the way that we respond is actually more of an indication of us than it is of the external events. So I'll give you an example with this outbreak. So the minute it becomes a fear of you know shortages of food, short, shortages of toilet paper, um, instantly there's almost this instinctual response of like, oh no, got to protect myself. And this this underlying um, notion that we have of ourselves is very good and helpful to other people. That's challenged by the reality of when you're in survival mode you suddenly start thinking in more of a selfish way uh, of how you can protect yourself. And that's understandable from a survival perspective. But what I think all this is indicating is this outbreak is presenting what we are, what human nature is in all of its complexity. Because on the one hand, 
you have people hoarding supplies, maybe taking away from other people that really need them. And on the other hand, you have people who are in the medical communities um, who are doing their best to help people who are, you know, providing resources for each other, who are going out and helping elderly people that might need help during these times. And there's this very interesting aspect of human nature is coming out of the multifaceted nature of us that like, we both have like very good aspects and we have evil self-seeking aspects. Um, and I think it's, it's providing, as you said, a, uh, an incredible opportunity for growth to think like, what is really important in my life? Is it just all about me or maybe there's something I can do to help? And I think that um, how we respond is, is going to be very indicative of who we are as really a society of um, what kind of people are we? Are we the kind of people that just hide indoors and fend for ourselves? Or are we people who take risks to help other people perhaps in situations where they need it because of, I mean, it's a crazy situation out here. You know, it's not like rent is not going to be due. And if Absolutely. you don't have work, what are you going to do? And if there's, if the quarantine proceeds in any sense or gets uh, worse where there actually is like mandated quarantines, like your, you know, curfews set on houses and things like that, you know, what's going to be the, reaction to that. I mean, we see throughout history, these events of when, you know, natural disasters strike or big political unrest happens that people just start rioting and looting. Like, is yes. that, is that what we're heading towards with? Well, I certainly hope not. That's a great, great point you make, because I think we're very lucky that we haven't seen that yet. Right. Um, and I think we've sort of seen that in a controlled way with people rushing to stores and buying all the hand sanitizer, buying all the toilet paper. In some ways, that's like organized looting, I would say. Um, <laughs> it's it's wild out there. But you're that's, you know, that's really the ultimate worry, right? Is that society as we know it, civilization as we know it will cease to exist, it will break down. It already is ceasing to exist. It already is breaking down. That is essentially what is happening, but it could be much, much worse. It could be much more disorganized. It could lead to unnecessary calamities. So my hope is that we will see the rise of heroes during this time rather than the collective release of human humanity's shadow aspects. Now, mm. I think we're already seeing that, um, but I think it's it's slowly being released almost like steam uh, from a tea kettle when it's uh, hot. I think we're slowly being released now. We're, we're allowing ourselves to kind of release these darker aspects of ourselves and see them, to see them and cope with them in the right way. And I think ultimately this will lead to, like you know, what we said before, a positive outcome for humanity. Um, yeah, no, I think... With the quarantines, with, with, you know, I think in New York City in particular, talking about a, they're calling it a shelter in place right now, because they're not going to call it quarantine. I think they're trying to create a new, uh, you know, almost like new speak word to kind of get people to be, you know, to comply with what's going on. Um, I think that's probably not a bad thing. Uh, you know, I'm very glad I don't live in New York City, obviously. Uh, you know, I live in upstate New York, a lot of trees up here. You know, I could walk out of my backyard if I need to or out in my deck just to get some fresh air. Because if you're living in an apartment building, you know, in any city across America right now, um, you're kind of limited, uh, especially if you are forced to stay in your home on wh where you can do and what, you, and, you know, the quality of air that you're breathing. Uh, it's concerning, but this is why, you know, we have to hope that this doesn't last as long as we're being told it potentially might. Um, but all we can do is kind of wait and see. And so it's imperative that our, our, our morale, 
our psyche, we try to stay as positive as possible because if the worst does come to, to roost, we really must be in, like you said, the right mind state to respond to mm-hmm. our external circumstances in order to uh, be able to move forward in a, in a non-detrimental way. Yeah, and I think this is a good place to go into what happened during World War II. How uh, during World War II, all of the strife that was going on, the warfare, it brought out a lot of the worst aspects of humanity. It also brought out a lot of good aspects of humanity. But what always fascinates me about World War II is that a lot of the atrocities committed by, um, by Germany were just done by ordinary people. Yes. That like... They were, obviously it was state sponsored. You know, the state was telling people to go out and do this, that, and this. Um, But there was many moral transgressions that happened on a very individual basis where it's like, just because shit has hit the fan doesn't mean that we don't have moral responsibility anymore because what the effects of not taking that moral responsibility can be now can be really disastrous, can lead to these big scale issues like rioting and looting. Because those, I mean, rioting and looting, those are decisions that people make. Absolutely. And mass. An opportunity, someone starts and then everyone else goes, all right, well, then it becomes a survival thing where it's like, you have to do that to survive now. And I think it's really important during times of great stress to remember the things that matter, you know, most and who we are as people and what we want to be remembered for, you know? Yeah. So uh, very quickly, I just want to say that, you know, once again, it's like the heroes versus the, you know, the worst side of humanity. So when we look back at world war II, you can look at the history of it. And in the history books, we really learn about the negative stuff more so, which I think is, you know, kind of what we have to do. Um, you got to teach kids about Hitler. You got to teach them about Stalin. You got to teach them about Mussolini, even Japan, right? What they did in China. It's important that they know that you can't gloss over those events. Um, especially the rise of Hitler is very, very important to understand um, because that's how people did those unspeakable acts. It was done legally. Hitler rose to power through the legal system, which is very fascinating. He didn't just like take control as people might think. And I I love teaching about this, right? Because there's this term false flag that we hear very, very often. Um, You know, people will attribute this to 9-11 and various other things, you know, with, with, you know, there might be scant evidence perhaps of that, but I think enough people in this collective now look at 9-11 as being in a sense a false flag because what it led to down the road, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, whoever did it, whatever, you know, that's not, we're not going to discuss that here. We'd be here for the next five years if we were discussing yeah. something like that, um, you know, because the the amount of information that's been put out there over the past 20 years regarding the events on that day. But ultimately, um, you know, we, we need to understand that, uh, especially in times of crisis, people take advantage of them, right? People in power are going to use the crisis uh, to create a narrative, right? That benefits their, their end goals, their, their um, whatever, basically future they want to create. So with Hitler, like you said, he was, he would, he came to power legally. He did not, uh, he did try to launch a coup, uh, early in the, in the 1920s called the beer hall putsch. He tried to get the Nazis into power, uh, or the German workers party. I think they were called at that point. They weren't necessarily Nazis just yet. And he failed. And I always love telling the kids about this because he is sent to jail. Uh, he's supposed to serve a few years sentence. Uh, he's not allowed to give uh, public speeches anymore. And in his time in jail, he writes Mein Kampf, my struggle. And we all have a struggle. Our whole lives are a struggle. I, I agree with that. 
Um, his struggle was legitimate uh, in the sense that he fought in World War One. He faced poisonous gas. Uh, so he had health problems from the war. He had felt the pain of fighting for Germany and Germany losing the war. And it's very important to understand the Treaty of Versailles, the uh, document that was signed after World War I, because what it did was put enormous strain and blame on Germany. All right, so the German economy collapsed, essentially. It was being propped up by U.S. Uh, government, essentially, loans. Uh, so the, basically, the France and Britain were uh, bankrupt after World War I because of all the money they spent on building bombs and you know, essentially funding the war effort. So France and Britain needed to get their debt paid off, so they said, we're going to get Germany to pay off for debt. But Germany's also broke. So the U.S. is just funneling, essentially, you know, monopoly money to Germany, and Germany is, is trying to pay off the allies, and you have the circle of debt that ultimately ends up leading to the Great Depression, all right? And I won't get too much into that. You can look into that if you want to. It's a very interesting uh, point of history where you kind of see how all these countries are once again interconnected. Right. right. So it's like the conditions of the country at the time, because of the great stress and crisis, they essentially pushed together for somebody to express that like deep unconscious. And there was a lot Absolutely. of good intentions and a lot of collective evils that came out in this person. And it's Absolutely. arguable that if it wasn't Adolf Hitler who had done it, it would have been someone else because there was such pressure at the time for something like that to occur. It's World War II is a very fascinating time because you see the rise of dictatorships all across the world at the same Absolutely. time. As if it's like this collective... Um, fight against something that some very pivotal thing is happening in the what Carl Jung called the collective unconscious, and right. I feel in a sense that during these times um, with these outbreaks, there's a lot of factors coming through the just collective unconscious of humanity that's causing us to look back and reflect on ourselves. And it's not just business as usual; like something's different. It's um, no, no different times, and that's the thing is how, what aspects of our nature will be shown by how we deal with all of this, really? Do we come so together? Me, do we cooperate? Or does it be, descend into chaos? Well, yeah. And you can kind of cooperate in, into chaos. So you, because that's, that's what we're going to see in, in, with Hitler, right? So let me just finish that story there. So you have the Treaty mm. of Versailles. It punishes Germany harshly. They're in serious debt. It takes a wheelbarrow full of cash to buy a loaf of bread. Uh, insane poverty. The Republic... Uh, that was created, the Weimar Republic, a democratic government for Germany after the Kaiser was kicked out after World War I, is inefficient. Uh, it doesn't really work. Coalitions can't form. So ultimately, that's why you see, and you said, all across the world, these dictatorships are forming. Uh, it's because people are dissatisfied with uh, what, they're told, what they were told was supposed to be the saving grace, right? Oh, we have representative government now. Your, your uh, pleas will be heard. Uh, you, you, whatever you need will be provided for, and that's not happening. So people listen to someone like Hitler, who, by the way, like I said, he was supposed to serve the shale time. He was released after nine months. He was allowed to speak again. So they, no one followed through on, on this man's coup against the government. So, okay. Well, he had many like, supporters, actually. Right. I remember watching this. Um, there's this really interesting documentary on Netflix. It's called something like, Hitler's inner circle of evil or something like that. Yes, and it, yes, we were talking about this. It chronicles the rise to power of multiple individuals who became kind of like the lead people within the Nazi party, including Hitler, who was actually just a partial instrument of that whole party because they were all cooperating sure. together. 
Um, And what that series shows is that he was speaking to some of the most negative aspects in people, but they were true that that's why they gathered response. And he gives this um, when he's actually indicted to go to prison, he gives this speech like he, he, so he was supposed to have basically a court case against him. Um, And this like a question and answer type format, asking about it, what he did, why he did it and, you know, giving Mm -hmm. him a sentence, but it actually completely devolved. And he just started giving a speech to this group Uh. of people. And a lot of people in the audience, I believe, actually applauded him and supported what what he was doing, even though they later went on to imprison him. But they they let him out with a very light sentence because a lot of the people within the government actually supported what he was doing. Um, So while he was speaking about the problems of Germany, Bogdan, and and they were real problems, the people were suffering, the people were starving, the economy was destroyed, Their, their, their sense of identity had been crushed. Um, so I, I understand whenever I teach early Hitler, I always say like, this actually makes sense. Like he not, you know, I'm not trying to argue for anti-Semitism necessarily, but what, you know, the, the core problems in Germany, he was trying to address them by saying, we've been screwed over. The allies don't care about us. We need to protect Germany. We need to fight for Germany ourselves, Germans ourselves in order to lift ourselves up again. Um, and that is why people applauded him during that speech. That is also why when the Reichstag burned down, Okay, which is the great seminal event that led to his being appointed chancellor with the Enabling Act, I believe 1931, uh, 31, 33 was that time frame where this all kind of goes down. He uh, is able to say that, yes, some communists, foreign communists uh, did this to us. The communists are enemies. Jews and communists were being grouped together back in the day there, um, which is very interesting if you think about it. And uh, he was able to kind of loop these enemies together and say, these are the people against us, the foreigners, uh, the communists, they did this to us. They are trying to kill Germany from within and we cannot allow this. We need a strong, uh, you know, forget democracy. We need, this is a, this is a crazy time, a time of crisis. We need to have a dictator. We need to have someone who's going to take charge and protect the people of Germany uh, and for their best for their best interests. And so he's able to take power that way. The old General Hindenburg reluctantly signs off and gives Hitler the powers to essentially become dictator. And ultimately, it's a slow and steady roll from there. Uh, there's a great scene in the show that I show the kids, a clip, where um, basically the Hitler's trying to say, like, we have to suspend all freedom of the press, freedom of speech. We're going to look through your letters from now on. There's no more privacy because we need to do this to protect Germany. Mm. And obviously, there's still half the people in the room that are not okay with that, right? People on the other side, the other political parties, they don't want this. But what do the Nazis start doing? They get up and they start singing a song about Germany overall, Deutschland über alles, all right? And if you don't get up and sing, aren't you like the enemies? And so everyone starts feeling this, this mass hysteria, this herd mentality. Well, if I don't join along, I look like a, the problem here. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, he's able to convince people to follow along with him. He is an, an, an excellent orator. Uh, you listen to those speeches, man, you get the chills because this man, like you said, is, is hitting on some of those deep shadow elements of humanity and those emotions that you have of feeling powerless. And he makes you feel like he's giving you that power. I don't know where it's coming from. It's coming from the depths of somewhere, right? Um, and, and ultimately, that's kind of what propels him in Germany into this kind of 
scenario that becomes nightmarish over the next few years. You know, I think, uh, you know, the Jews were scapegoated, communists were scapegoated, degenerates, handicapped people were scapegoated. Uh, he was able to push this ideology of eugenics, which did not originate in Germany by any means. This uh, originated in the United States and the United Kingdom. A lot of people held these ideas about eugenics throughout the world. Hitler was just kind of the mouthpiece for that. Um, you have people in the United States like Charles Lindbergh, Nazi sympathizers, Henry Ford, who were really kind of okay with Hitler. Uh, he was Time's Man of the Year, Time Magazine's Man of the Year uh, in the mid-30s because he did help Germany. He was bringing back some semblance of order and prosperity mm. to the, this, this downtrodden people. And that's kind of what then convinced people to go along with, well, if he, he did this for us, now it's, you know, I guess I'll do this also, even though morally I may not feel okay with this. What else can we do? We're, we came this far. We're not going to go back now. And at that point, it's kind of a, a snowball effect. Right. And so it's the perfect example of how if we don't examine what's going on during a crisis, it can lead to unimaginable evil that seems justified at the time. And then, you know, you wake up a few years later and you're like, how did this happen? And it's like every single person's decisions all along the way led to this event. And much of the most unsavory aspects of human nature came out and led to unimaginable state-sponsored evil. And no country was free from evil during World War II. It's often painted as if, you know, the Axis was evil and the Allies were good. But there was, the Allies were doing uh, city bombings on innocent civilians. Uh, the Axis was doing horrible things, basically committing genocides all over the world. And, you know, it, it's an interesting uh, thing. And what I want to get into on that subject is what, what do these events, which were pretty pretty recent, actually. I mean, you know, 70, 80 years ago, uh, the world devolved into chaos and, you know, millions, millions of people died. I think the number is in hundreds of millions. Um, What can we learn from an event like that in our times now? And what, what does it tell us about the human psyche, really? It's a loaded question, Bog, and it's not easy to learn from something like that. Like you said, there's so many different events. For instance, I believe the British were the first ones to actually start bombing cities am i not am i mistaken with that i believe they kind of got the ball rolling there so like you said there's no obviously we look at hindsight and say they were the good guys they were the bad guys but you know the united states essentially forced japanese citizens who have been living in the country owned businesses owned homes to get up and go into you know they weren't as bad as concentration camps but they were uh, detention camps internment camps and those people never got back their businesses. They lost most of their wealth if they had any. And that was a great travesty. And I know that Fred, you know, Franklin Roosevelt kind of felt bad about it. His wife especially was against it. But he felt like he had, his back was against the wall. And that is the danger, uh, is when we feel like our backs are against the wall. Um, and if we're being told our backs are up against the wall, that's when we start acting rashly. We're not thinking about long-term consequences. And terrible, terrible things can happen. So, um, but very quickly, I just want to get back to the heroes because some of the great movies that we see about World War II, uh, like Schindler's List, right? You have a man who's able to save thousands of innocent Jewish people's lives uh, who would have been killed in death camps. There are countless stories throughout Europe of people that were, you know, protected ultimately by the Catholic Church, by other groups, uh, just regular citizens, individuals who decided I'm going to risk my life to protect people that, you know, ultimately did nothing to me. Yes, I'm being, I'm being told to demonize them, but ultimately, who am I being told to demonize, demonize them by? Some of the greatest demons that ever existed on the face of the earth, right? So 
I think it's very important for us to not get too ahead of ourselves here and to, and to not, um, you know, start, start losing our minds because that's really what it is. And like you said, it's people losing their minds. They're, they're losing their sense of rationality, but they're most importantly losing their sense of empathy, their sense of compassion for others. Um, you know, uh, you think of black, black Friday, right? Every year, black Friday. Uh, I wonder what black Friday will be like this year. Right. I wonder if we'll learn anything from this, you know, um, is it worth, you know, uh, fighting someone, wrestling someone over uh, a piece of, you know, an electronic equipment that really doesn't, it's not important for you to survive with it, right? It's not a piece of food or, you know, water that's going to keep you sustained on this planet. So I think it's very important to, that we start to even look back at recent history, especially now and be like, wow, the way that we've been acting is, is scary. And we need to evaluate our actions and our reactions to events and circumstances because they're not, they're not realistic, there's no reason for us to freak out over some of these little mundane things when there have been such greater disasters in the past in history that people um, have gone through. So I think to get back to your question, we need to look at history and the events from the past to see, like you said, how, how do people react in order to not respond in, in a detrimental way, but maybe see, oh, there were people that risked their lives to save some of the people um, that, that were being condemned to death by various groups. I want to be like those people. I don't want to be like the ones that just went along with the crowd, went along with the, the, the scourge of, of the, the herd mentality um, in order to kind of save face and to stay on the right side of history. Because those Germans thought they were on the right side of history. Um, because they were taught that they were. They were taught they were saving the Aryan race. They're from this great, I mean, he, Hitler was playing on the, the lessons of history, the Aryans, these great people. This is who we descend from. We must reclaim the, these, these people. We must, uh, you know, live, live through them or let them allow them to live through us once more. And so people bought this hook, line, and sinker, and they were way too deep in uh, at a certain point to be able to walk back. Uh, you know about uh, the movie Operation Valkyrie, where people did try to kill Hitler because they saw that this was going bad for Germany. This was not going to end well. So even, even in those late stages, people were still saying, we want to get out. We don't want in this anymore, this crazy train, wherever the hell it's going. You know, we want off. And uh, ultimately, people were willing to sacrifice their lives for that. And if the Axis had won the war, we would be telling a completely different history, wouldn't we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if we were still alive in the same way, um, the history of the whole war would have been completely different, even to this point, even 70, 80 years later. Um, and there's the saying that, you know, history is written by the victors. Oh, yes. Not necessarily by who is good or who is right, but by the people who win. And um, what do you think is a, a useful way to look into history so that we don't fall into that? Uh, surface level understanding of what happened because obviously a lot of uh, state propaganda comes in the form of history. Like this is what you believe in. In 1984, that book by, um, yes, by Orwell Orwell. is a perfect example of how a uh, state will rewrite history to create like a new narrative for the future because Indeed. where we have been is where we are going also. Well, I think it's very, uh, you, that's the most important here. Is, and people say this all the time. You have to look at things objectively. But we say that. And I don't know if that's really actually the, uh, the whole answer. 
Mm. I think we need to look at it with our hearts also and, and, and try to bring uh, empathy into it and bring our, our, that's what really makes us human. Otherwise we're just robots. We're just like, you know, uh, an automaton. If we look at things, well, this makes sense. And this is the way, uh, you know, this is the best outcome for me. So I'm going to do this. Uh, that might not be the best outcome for the majority of people. That might not be the right thing to do ultimately in hindsight. So uh, I'll bring up, uh, the United States, for instance, now, because this is kind of where a lot of my awakening came from. Mm. Uh, I, I didn't grow up naively thinking necessarily that we are the shining city on the hill or that we are the uh, should be the policeman of the world necessarily. But I, I do value our, our freedoms here in this country. And I think I've, I've really hit a stride with that now, especially as a teacher, where I remind the kids uh, you know, especially when I'm teaching World War II, like, you know, if, if this had gone differently, a lot of you would not be here right now. Uh, we would not be talking about things so freely. This would be a nightmare of a world in some ways compared to the relative peace and prosperity that we have in our world today. And I, I hammer that point home. I almost, it's, in a way, I almost want to scare the daylights out of them for them to think about what could have been. Uh, and it shows, like uh, Sorry to interrupt here, no, but no, I just no, want to bring in the idea that what's happening now with this crisis really shows how fragile all of this really is. How fragile our society is, how fragile, you know, consumerism and like the production of goods and the buying of goods really is when even just a very seemingly mild thing happens um, in terms of what's actually happening. The response shows that a lot of society seems to be a house of cards. We were and, coasting, Bogdan. We were complacent. Yeah. Uh, we, we, our generation, especially ours, and even our parents, had no, mm -hmm. have no idea of, of, of the hardships. Unless, I mean, unless your parents or, or you had parents that lived through, uh, or you know, relatives that lived through communism, perhaps. Maybe mm -hmm. then they, they knew a little bit about the hardships, or perhaps they were living in a country uh, under one of the imperialist wars of the United States, right? Um, you know, we're spreading freedom around, and that's a really great motif to use, but that's not the case on the ground. Look at a country like Iraq, for instance, uh, where, you know, millions of people, uh, you know, potentially have died in the last 20 years because of our actions over there. And yes, we did topple Saddam Hussein, terrible dictator. No one's arguing that Saddam Hussein should be in power right now. But at the same time, we unearthed some age-old conflicts in Iraq. Iraq should never have been a country. It was drawn up in the Sykes-Picot Agreement between the French and the English after World War I. Another great decision uh, and agreement that was made right after World War I, just like the Treaty of Versailles that led to long-lasting, uh, awful effects for the world stage. You have the Kurds who live up in the north of Iraq. You have the Sunnis uh, essentially in the central of Iraq. And then you have the Shias in the south. You have three different ethnic groups who um, essentially two of them are, well, all of them have different religions in, in a sense. Um, Shia Muslims are much more like uh, they side with the Iranians. That's, uh, they're about 20%, 25% of the uh, worldwide population of Muslims. They're like the, the minority sect and the Sunni sect is much larger, 70% plus uh, the majority sect in the world. So Iraq is a powder keg for civil war for sectarian violence. And that's what happened when we, after we went in there. Yes, we got rid of Saddam, but we had no plan for after Saddam. We thought, oh, we'll just give them a democracy. They'll figure it out on their own. It's all going to be fantastic. Uh, 
yeah, you know, that sounds awesome on paper, but that's not what ended up happening as we well know. And so for me growing up, that's how I learned uh, was how to look at history was by looking at the current events and seeing, holy cow, our own country is making serious, serious uh, mistakes right now that are going to affect us probably for the rest of our lives uh, down the road. And so that's really what taught me was seeing how, you know, our media might be telling us that what we're doing is necessary, that what we're doing is good. Uh, you know, Afghani- uh, girls in Afghanistan can go to school now. That's awesome. Uh, I totally think that's positive. But is that the whole story, right? Uh, what, why are we really over there? What is really going on? Perhaps we'd be better off just letting the people self-determine uh, their own states and their own livelihoods. Maybe some people want to live under theocratic uh, law. Maybe some people in the Middle East want that sort of lifestyle. Who are we to tell them that's not okay? Um, granted, you might not want to live that way. I might not agree with uh, Sharia law and, and particularly some of the precepts that go along with that. But I don't know if we're doing any better by going over there and forcing people to change their ways of life because all we're doing is creating more animosity especially towards our way of life, which is very free-flowing and very allowing. And now we've created this conflict, like I said before, that will persist, you know, potentially for generations. And it's, mm. it's a very deep-seated wound that we've been putting Band-Aids over for far too long. And, you know, and it's funny because now what we're dealing with here is so big, uh, those, those wars seem minuscule in the face mm. of what we're going through now. And that honestly is what scares me the most. Because I was, you know, I always thought these were the big problems. And now like, oh my God, these, these are actually, you know, uh, paling in comparison now to what we're dealing with here at home. Mm. But I will say this, in some ways we are due. Like I said, when I started this rant over, you know, just now, is that we have been complacent. Um, we were coasting. We haven't felt the effects of what we've done to some of these places around the world. And I'm not saying we, me, you, the the children of this country, even people in their 30s, 40s, people just working on Wall Street, even, uh, you know, even even our soldiers, they're they're not, you know, they're just, they're they're pushing forward an agenda that's being told, uh, you know, they're they're being, essentially they have to do it. They have no choice, right? If you disagree Mm -hmm. and say, no, I won't break into this person's house and arrest these potential terrorists, you're going to be court-martialed. You might face jail time. You can't risk that. You're, you, you essentially must follow orders. And that's why it's scary right now. We're in a state where we must follow orders for our own good um, because ultimately we don't know what the outcome is if we don't. And just happened in Vietnam, right? The same thing with these soldiers. They were put, their backs were against the wall. They had to do what they had to do in order to maintain and survive, right? So yeah, mm-hmm. okay, I am going to treat every civilian now as a potential threat because they might, you know, a little child might walk up to me with a grenade or this woman might have, you know, a, uh, you know, an IED uh, under her burqa potentially. We don't know. So it puts humans in a state of fear, a state of distress constantly. And all of a sudden we're making rash decisions. And I think that's the greatest mm-hmm. war crime, uh, you know, of the last, and, and there's plenty, there's been plenty of war crimes, but the main one is what we've done in the Middle East over the last 20 years. And, mm. you know, I, I don't want to say anything else about what, what should be done with the people who cause these things, but I think it's clear that you look at what happened and it's very sad, it's very disheartening, and it makes you question what are we really fighting for? And kind of just to wrap this up here, because I do do this with my students very often, it's kind of focused on all the terrible things. And, like, because we're not aware of it. We're really not aware to the extent because we're told that we're so great and so awesome that, you know, that we've done these terrible things or that we, you know, at least allowed it and didn't hold up a a microscope or a 
or, or a light to what was going on uh, when, when it was happening. Um, so uh, I do remind them that we are very lucky to live in this country. We do have a lot of freedoms. This country was, you know, you can, uh, to, to an extent, say, was founded on proper ideals. Sure, there was slavery. There was still great inequality and terrible things that were happening, even by the people who wrote some of these great ideas. You can't ignore that. But we still have these freedoms. We must be thankful that I say every day you wake up in this country, you can kiss your pillow and be thankful you live here because there's relative peace and prosperity here, unlike not just other parts of the world today, but other parts of the world throughout history. The, what we've had here is just a blessing and mm-hmm. we need to be grateful for it, especially now, even when it seems like things are falling apart. We're not even close to that. We're still very right. lucky. Things are still very good. I think the the theme that we keep touching on here is how historical events can bring out some of the worst things in the human psyche and how to be on guard essentially against that occurring and to keep our cool because we are living in history right now. This, these events, it's hard to say what will happen, but they will certainly be significant uh, just because of the mass response that's happening on such a wide scale and the participation of social media in this, the participation of uh, pretty much every company in this sending out notices of what oh their God. policies are. Every, you know, everybody is commenting on this right now. And it's the most political involvement I've probably ever seen in my life, to be honest. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It's and what I want to, what I want to touch on here is what are some of the, the, the things that you learned from your studies of history that you think have made you a, a better person that have made you wiser? That is a very hard answer or far, sorry, a hard question to answer. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to go on a limb here and I'm just going to explain how I got into history because I think that's maybe the best way to do this. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe I'll think, I mean, maybe the answer will come out uh, as I okay. tell this little story. Cause that's really what history is. It's just stories, right? Narratives. Um, that we're telling. It's not exactly how things went down. It's just one perspective, but it's the best we can do. So um, like I said before, I'm a very proud half-blooded Greek. Uh, my grandmother, uh, my yaya, my, my mother were born on the island of Samos uh, in Greece right now. Uh, in, in Greece right now, they're facing some trials with uh, you know the whole migrant crisis with Turkey, um, where you have a bunch of migrants. And this is another terrible effect of those wars that we saw uh, or that I was talking about a moment ago in the Middle East is that you have all these refugees in Syria, from Syria, from Afghanistan, from Iraq, uh, from Africa as well, Libya, and they're funneling in because they're trying to escape the chaos that was created. Um, so right now, Greece is facing a trial, you know, not just the virus, like all countries are, but they're facing a trial that they've been going, you know, dealing with the last four or five years, and now it's hitting ahead again. And um, I won't get too far into that because that's another story for another day. But uh, just to say that, you know, this is, this is where I come from. This is who I identified with uh, uh, growing up. And it means a lot to me to be Greek because especially because I don't look it. I have red hair. People just think I'm an Irish dude. It's St. Patrick's Day. No, I'm not Irish. I'm not any percent Irish at all. <laughs> Greek, I'm a little bit Italian, a little bit Swedish, all right? I got a mix of a bunch of different things. But uh, being Greek is who I am. And, and, and it, was, it was instilled in me as a child. My yaya uh, would tell me about what it meant to be Greek. I, I learned Greek 
Um, I'm not fluent necessarily, but I, I can speak pretty well. I can understand. I can write a little bit. I went to Greek school for many years, took Greek in college. Um, it was a big part of my identity. It, it gave me a sense of purpose. It gave me a sense of pride uh, to be happy about who I am. And so even when I was young, I would look, I had a big book with a, a map of the world and my yaya would tell me stories. She'd point to Greece, this little country on the map and tell me stories about what happened before she was born, what her uh, her mother, her grandmother went through. There was a great tragedy at the end of World War One. also. Uh, uh, a lot of stuff went down at the end of World War One, where there was essentially, you know, a genocide, uh, you know, of not just Armenians, but some Greeks too on the Western coast of Turkey, modern day Turkey, um, and a lot of refugees left uh, essentially Smyrna and some of these cities on the western coast and went over to Samos and other islands and left Greece. There was this great population exchange. A lot of Turks left Greece to go to back to Turkey, and a lot of Greeks left Turkey to go to Greece. And it kind of was this, you know, disaster ensued essentially. And she would tell me about this. And for someone who was five, six, seven years old to learn these lessons of history, um, it became very normal for me. To, to that suffering in uh, hardship was a very big part of life. Even though I personally wasn't experiencing that at all, my life was very cushy. I was very blessed. I had all the food I could ever need, all the clothes I would ever need. I had loving parents, loving grandparents. I, I was very lucky growing up. But I still had this sense of, and this might be the lesson that you learn from history, is that things are actually, they can be very bad. And, and, mm. and it takes, it takes, a very short period of time for things to get very crazy, very hectic, and for people to lose their heads. And so nowadays, um, you know, that's kind of what motivated me to essentially pursue history was to learn all about Greece, to learn all about my people, who, who I am, uh, and the blood that flows through my veins, right? I, I, I became uh, aware of that, the nature of that through reading the books, talking to my ancestors, talking to my parents and whatnot about who I am. Uh, and it, it informed me. History informs you. Uh, it should inform you about yourself, even if you're not learning about history from your own people. I, I'm very blessed that I have that connection. The Greeks in Western history were some of the first people to write down and recorded history. I mentioned Herodotus, Thucydides. I feel very blessed to come from this lineage, all right, of, of some of the, you know, uh, you know, the, the foundations of the Western world, our government, our, our education system, our, our ways of thought, even our science, our medicine, a lot of ways ties back to this. And so I feel like it is living. For me, it's living because I see it. I see it, how it's still reverberating from the past uh, all the way, you know, from those ancient times. And so that's, that's kind of how it all came to be for me is that I kind of just lived it. I never questioned it. I sort of embodied this history and I thought, yeah, I want to be a history teacher because I love it. I, I, I feel I love it because it is me and I want to love myself. And I think that's the ultimate goal of our lives is to love ourselves, accept ourselves for who we are. And so let's say you, you're, you know, uh, you were adopted, you're an orphan, perhaps maybe even you take one of those uh, genealogy tests in order to find out where your, your people come from. And I think that's really good because I think that's going to help you feel a sense of purpose, a sense of continuity, that you're not just living in isolation, that you're not just some random purpose uh, person on this earth with no purpose, mm. uh, you know, tr you know, going from one Netflix show to another binge watching <laughs> and what the hell am I going to do tomorrow? I, I, you know, I, I don't know what's going on. I, I want to feel like I, I'm here to, for a reason. And so for me, luckily, history was the way to do that. And I think now some people are connecting with their, their past, their ancestors, even if they don't have living ancestors to talk to about that. They can see, oh, I came from here. 
oh, I can learn about this place. And learning about that history ultimately gives you the story of your ancestors and it gives you, uh, just gives you that sense of connection. Um, and I think that's what mythology does. And, you know, we'll get into this eventually, maybe on a later episode, perhaps. Um, it it kind of gives us that sense of timelessness of humanity and that we're not just alone on a rock floating uh, with no sense of purpose, waiting right. to go back into the ground. There is a greater purpose to this and we have to discover it and it takes effort. And I think history is just one way to kind of get into that and sort mm. of start writing our own story is by reading the stories of those in the past um, and, and, and yeah, creating that purpose for ourselves. So there's a Carl Jung quote that corresponds directly with this. Excellent. It, it goes, Man is not a machine that can be remodeled for quite other purposes as occasion demands in the hope that it will go on functioning as regularly as before, but in a quite different way. He or she carries his whole history with him. In his very structure is written the history of humankind. The historical element in man represents a vital need to which a wise psychic economy must respond. Somehow the past must come alive and participate in the present. So this is this idea that we cannot be separable from our history, from the history of um, Western civilization, from the history of the traditions that we come from. And to pretend that we're, you know, modern people separated from all of the ancient forces within humanity and the archetypes and the great evils that have ever been committed by humanity are committable by us. It's not like we've suddenly gone uh, beyond and also the greatest good that has ever happened exactly. also came from humanity um, and it also is a potential with us so to me I, I too got very fascinated in the more um, the atrocities of, of history war and and famine and mass murder and all these because these are things that we do, do not speak of often ah yes as being potentials for what a human can do and um, these are potentials for just an ordinary person, not even necessarily a psychopath, that if the social conditions are such, people can be led to great evil. So the lesson for me from history and from learning all this is just to really live my own life, to be aware of yes. all the mistakes that the ancients have made um, and all the great things that they've done and know that I... And everyone I know is a pivotal aspect of everything that we have great influence by the way that we act, by our seemingly insignificant choices. We alter things in great ways. Um, I know uh, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about the Gulag Archipelago, which I I've been meaning to read. Uh, I think an audiobook is coming out soon. I'm definitely going to be checking out. But basically, um, there's this guy, uh, Alexander Sol uh, Solzhenitsyn, that oh, yes. basically wrote about the evils of the gulags and the Soviet Union at the time where they were at its worst. Actually, he, had to, he was imprisoned um, and he wrote a lot of these works that were very political uh, later after he was released. He just kept them in his mind. But anyway, the, the point of that is that many people cite him as one of the major factors in the collapse of the Soviet Union. That here's just this writer who, yes. who observed what was going on spoke the truth, in fact, was in prison for a very long time because of it. Um, but what he did ended up influencing the whole world, actually. And he wasn't anybody particularly special. Uh, he was just a person who who noticed what was going on and went with what 
what he thought was right. He did what he believed to be right. And where other people were looking away and not commenting out of fear, mostly, uh, he went ahead and he took the initiative, which ended up leading to great evil upon himself, but which he eventually found his way out of. So to me, history is, it shows how, um, how much of a big difference we can make in how we act and that we have the potential to do great harm to people or to be of great benefit. And it's really a decision that each of us has to make. And like, what kind of people do we uh, want to be rather than just going along with what society requests of us? Um, and I'm not exactly sure how all of that really relates to what's going on directly now, but I guess it remains to be seen because it's very, very early in this event. And the piece that I take away is to just continue doing the best that I can to be a good person, to to help people, to um, avoid making any mistakes because we all contribute to this, you know, in, in I, some I'm way. So, I'm so happy that you brought up the individual because that's really what it comes down to. You know, when we learn history, we always, and when I was younger, this is how I viewed history is that you follow the leaders, the people who are in power, the wars they fought, what places they took over, uh, and that's it. And that's history. But it's, that is like, it's honestly the worst part of history. It's, it's the most, uh, it's almost deceiving that part of history because it's, that's very superficial because what's really going, what really matters is going on, uh, underneath the surface. Like you said, an individual who lived through, uh, you know, one of the most important political maneuvers in history with the whole gulag creation in the Soviet union, he was able to have more of an impact uh, you could argue than even Stalin himself, even though Stalin, yes, mass murderer, you know, tens of millions of people, horrible guy, um, you know, changed Russia. Uh, you know, you could argue that the way he industrialized the five-year plans allowed Russia to even beat the Nazis. So there's a, there's a positive there, even if you want to look at it that way. But really it comes down to when you read about an individual in history, and this is why I think biographies are really important. Mm -hmm. um, you, you're bringing them to life and they're living through you. Um, we think about archetypes as these general abstract uh, sort of character traits. But I want to say, I want to take a, you know, a, a leap here and say that archetypes are individuals um, and that when we read about an individual who lived, who made an impact, we are actually embodying them if we care to. Um, so if you want to be a whistleblower, let's say, and you work in a government agency, you might want to read a little bit about Edward Snowden, right? Um, if you want to be, or, or let's say uh, you want to be a social advocate, or they say social justice warrior today, right? That's the big term. Um, you might want to read a little bit about Martin Luther King, right? Because these are the people, they might have not been president, right? They might have not been great generals or led armies into battle, but they did way more than that because their ideas changed the world. And I think that's, like you said, it remains to be seen who will be our heroes nowadays with what we're going on right now, I think it'll be people like you and me uh, or any of the people that you've interviewed um, on your excellent podcast series, because we're all working in this together. We all need each other. We all have little bits of knowledge here and there to piece together this quilt uh, that's going to essentially keep humanity alive uh, throughout these, these troubling times. Uh, we need to know mm -hmm. how to heal ourselves naturally. We need to know how to deal with our mental health in a, in a positive way. Um, we should also know, uh, you know, entertainment. I would say history, in a lot of ways, is entertainment. We're just learning, you know, for fun and to, to see what happened. But that entertainment can be very informative and it can lead us to become better people, more informed people. And we could, you know, we become more authoritative mm -hmm. when we learn more uh, and people hear that, right? And that's why, you know, when kids listen to me, uh, I think what they see is not so much what I'm talking about, the passion. 
that I have, the fact that I, they can see I'm devoted to this. And I think they see, they're thinking, why does he care so much? And I think that's what we need in this world. We need less apathy. We need a lot more uh, passion and, and commitment to uh, what it is that we're into these days. It's very, it's very important that we start to uh, focus on being the best people that we can be and become passionate individuals that give it our all every single day, mm-hmm. day in, day out, because we don't know how much time we have here. We can't just say, oh, I'll do this and that tomorrow. Now is the time. Yeah, and, and history uh, is the collected stories of humanity and the expression of the collective unconscious and the collective psyche of humanity and what that leads to. So it's a treasure trove of personal insights, actually, because history is just made up of individuals interacting with each other. That's all of history is, you know, either nations interacting abstractly, people interacting. And um, it's popular to think of society as like existing almost like outside of ourselves or something that, you know, there's this thing, it's called society and there's this thing called government. Um, But really we, we are it. Like how we act is what it becomes. Like no one really has um, say over our lives other than ourselves or what we go along with. So I think that that's really, uh, really empowering for people to know that um, in all spheres, although they are influenced by external factors, obviously, they have say of what happens in their life, like especially for health, for example, to, to tie it back to health is you, the decisions you make, the little decisions that seem insignificant affect your health, uh, mental, physical, your actions affect the political situation also. Everyone, you know, feeds into everything. So I think it brings us a great sense of um, responsibility about our lives and uh, doing what we can. And during these times, I think it's really important just to keep our cool, make the most out of the situation. I think in times of great darkness, the greatest light can come out. That's something that I've definitely seen in my life and throughout history. And let's see what the light of this all, all is. I mean, who knows? There could be very, very good consequences of all this. Maybe it'll increase community. Maybe people will understand how fragile this thing called Western civilization is that we that we all single-handedly built and now is threatened with the stock market plummeting and everyone kind of being in a, uh, you know, me versus the world type of instinctual response. Um, and everyone feels that to some extent. But I, I challenge people to, to see the, the good in the situation and see how... Um, how there's some kind of lesson in this all and that there's something that we can learn for ourselves and that we can influence and learn things for the future also that will affect us. And just like a virus spreads, Bogdan, you know, uh, ideas spread. And I think it's very important that, you know, like I said before, what you're doing with this is excellent because the world needs this. uh, And there's never enough people to do something like this. You know, if you're listening right now and you think, oh, well, if I make a podcast, no one's going to listen or, you know, I don't know enough people you just got to start somewhere. You, you can't, and, and that thought telling you you can't do it, that's, that's what's keeping humanity down. You know, we really need to believe and have faith in ourselves. And I feel like that's kind of what's drove, driven me as far as I've come is that I've, I believe strongly enough in, uh, in myself and in what I love and what I'm passionate about that it has led me to this point. Um, you know, you could say, you, you know, you want to be a teacher, you want to be a doctor, but if you don't put in the effort, um, and live that life like you live that you are a teacher you are a doctor when you go home and you take off your lab coat or you take off your tie and you're sitting at home it doesn't stop learning is always ongoing and it's so important mm-hmm. that we remember that because that's how we're gonna 
overcome anything that faces us is that we're always learning. We're always realizing that we can work towards something. It's not hopeless. It's never hopeless. It only becomes hopeless if we give up and let, and like you said, give up our agency, give up our sovereignty to external forces and say, well, I can't fix this. I can't change this. It is what it is. You know, there are certain things that you can't affect, but we can always affect, uh, we can always impact our own mindset. We can always create a certain outlook um, on how to how to deal with the world outside of us, and I think that's what's going to get us through these challenging times right now. And you know, I, uh, you know, I need this this reminder just as much as anyone else does. That this is these are tough times. These are, you know, it gets pretty hairy out there. And you know, there it's extremely important that I have talks with people like you and other people open minded that we remind ourselves that this is you know this too shall pass, and that ultimately uh, there could be some good that comes out of this, even if we the news that we get gets worse and worse. It's very possible the next time we talk, you know, things could somehow have gotten worse. Uh, but that's just the perspective, ultimately. And that's that's something that could change. And um, we, we need to work very hard right now to, to be the, the captain of our own ship uh, and steer ourselves towards uh, positive outlooks and positive mindsets so we could at least deal with what comes. And like you said before, react uh, in a way that you know will be beneficial for us in the long term, because every little decision that we make to give into fear could lead us to you know an, an outcome that is not what we ultimately want. Right, that's incredibly true. And um, I want to thank you for being on the podcast again. So we did a episode on astrology previously, but now we have gone into history and the psyche. And um, as we were discussing before, I wanted to make this kind of into a little bit of a series. We can get into a lot of um, other topics. I think an interesting place to go into next time is more like ancient history, archetypes, the history of mythology, how it impacts uh, the psyche and mind. And all of this that we're talking about really brings out the holistic aspect of history, that history isn't, you know, as Jung says, it's it's not in thick books, it's in our very blood, that our traditions, where we come from, it's it's important to know because there's this saying so much that it's basically a cliche now, but if you don't know where you're from, you don't know where you're going. Indeed. And I think a lot of the journey of self-discovery of humanity is finding out, you know, who we are, where we come from, because that informs who we will become in a Indeed. sense, because everything that precedes us leads to this. I mean, even just the response uh, to this whole outbreak, it reminds me that there's this like deep, deep, um, almost subconscious fear of this kind of like plague that exists within us. And it might even be, you know, biological for millions of years ago. And it's certainly more recent with the Spanish flu and the bubonic plague and things like that, where humanity remembers like, oh, this could be really bad. Like, right. So uh, perhaps everything is being done exactly as it should be and all will come into harmony. Uh, it's, it's hard to say, but I mean, for now, you know, we do what we can try to keep ourselves healthy, try to help people out as much as we can, not lose our cool too much, just, you know, see see what it all has to offer and, and make the most of it. I mean, this these kind of awesome times in a lot of ways too. I mean, more free time than we know what to do with in a lot of cases. Oh man, it's an opportunity, man. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to use this time to to, you know, not just work on the things that I always work on, but to read even more, to play, you know, as much music as possible. You know, we can't this is not the time to to get become hopeless. This is the time to, you know, like you said, like we're always complaining in this society. We don't have enough time for this. We work too hard. There's, you know, I can't I can never get enough sleep. Mm -hmm. Well, now we can do all these things that we said we've been wanting to do for a long time. And Let's it shows it. that the reason that we weren't doing those things. It's not because we didn't have time. 
but because there's many uh, blocks, there's many psychic blocks. So all this free time now exposes like, you know, all the things that you want to do, but are difficult for reasons yeah. that you may have not expected. So now is a time of discovery of like, um, for people that don't have work or, you know, schools closed or people within um, my community where clinic is closed is like, what do you do with free time when you don't have like a scheduled thing to do? And it, it's, it's an interesting question. I one that I'm actively working on. I mean, this is part of it is, is doing episodes like this to, yeah. to talk about things that I'm interested in. Um, I'm always very fascinated by history because I, as I said before, I think it really expresses the collective psychology of humanity. And from that perspective, it's interesting because it's almost like reading yourself. When you read history, you read about people who are really just like you. I mean, people with the same struggles, with the same sufferings, with the same setbacks, but um, it shows like ways that humans can overcome the, the worst aspect of ourselves, bring out the best aspects, how to deal in crises and all these. Um, there's this argument made for mythology that mythology is just kind of thousands of years of history condensed into like oh, short stories that encapsulate like this is what happens when this thing happens to hum the human mind. And this is the way out of that aspect. This is what happens when like this struggle happens. And this is the way that, you know, people for millions of years have stumbled onto accidentally that this is actually the way out of the state that, you know, during times of crisis, um, being cooperative and actually seeking to be a positive aspect are actually more beneficial than just spending for ourselves because we realize like actually how dependent we are on other people you know grocery stores close and it's like where do you get food from like i had that thought i'm like wow everything is so fragile everything is so fragile and people are working really hard to to um support each other and i think that's good and that's what should be emphasized not the fear but the community the let's band together let's do what's right and um indeed no that will lead us to the, the promised land bogdan you know if we work together to get through this we'll be fine ja, ja. Um, and i was going to say bob marley uh, actually <laughs> quote i was literally just thinking um he's uh, it's in the song rat race uh mm. he says know your history you know so you know your destiny and that's really where it comes into here um you know it's not straightforward for everyone but like you said you know the story of history you could you're reading about yourself when you're reading about history because you could be anyone born at any time period male, female, uh, you know, different races. It really doesn't, uh, you're, you're random. Like you, you are what you are in this life and that is what it is. But when you read history, you can put yourself in the shoes of anyone. And that allows you to really take a step back and consider other circumstances that you could potentially be in. So, you know, people who read about plagues in the past right now probably feel like a little more prepared than people who've, you know, never even knew there was anything like this going on. Um, and because, like you said, grocery stores, people take these things for granted. Uh, most of history, there, there was no steady source of food like this. People had to rely on themselves and others, especially communities. Um, they, they kept each other afloat. And now we don't really know our neighbor. Uh, you know, we're a little more isolated. So this is, this is why it's a little scarier because we don't have those uh, social safety nets that people relied upon uh, for thousands of years because we ha we've had such prosperity and such peace that we almost don't know what to do with ourselves now. But I'm, I'm going to, you know, try to make a good prediction here and say that we're going to go back to our roots here. And that's the goal of history, um, right, is to understand our roots and where we come from. And I think we're kind of being forced to do that now. And it will be hard at first to do that. I think it's going to take a lot of growing pains to bring us back to where we 
once were. But I think once we get through these first few weeks, maybe even a month or two, we'll start to remember how to live again. And, um, you know, I think we all will. I think we're all to an extent kind of caught up in this modern Western society, yeah. civilization. There's something to, so fascinating that's, that's happening that I noticed in the weeks before all of this happened. I noticed that people and myself included in a lot of ways were just exhausted by the usual routines. Mm. Like there was just an overall sense of like exhaustion. I mean, it, obviously it was in the depth of winter um, and this right, like go, right. go, go mentality. and. Um, now it's just like empty air. It's it's really interesting. And it makes me wonder if not, this is like exactly what needed to happen for people to take that that rest for themselves that people maybe so deeply subconsciously wanted that it actually came to manifestation <laughs> and was forced upon them as if by an external source. I don't know. Oh, man. It's musings. Uh, but let's yeah, make no, the most of it. <laughs> that's wise, Brother Bogdan. You always, uh, you always get those those deep psychological truths and uh, you're able to elab- uh, elucidate them for your listeners. And I think it's very important. Like I said before, that we have these talks that we, you know, people listen in and they spread these ideas that we, we we're not afraid to talk about these things with people. To, so, you know, if someone says, actually what we're going through right now could be a really good thing. Everyone might look at you and be like, is that guy crazy? Is he insane? <laughs> uh, but they might come around to that. And it's good. You introduce them to that idea now before they start rioting in the streets. Right. Because you got to start putting out the positive ideas now before things do start to perhaps unravel further, because, excuse me, people might not feel uh, hopeful at that point. And that could lead to the negative things. So we got to introduce those little seeds of optimism uh, now more than ever. Yeah, I certainly don't don't see it going in that direction. I think if it if it would have gone in that direction, it would have already gone in that direction. notwithstanding future changes. Um, so for now, these are interesting times. We're living in history right now. And- um, Flowing through our veins. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, thank you, Sir Eric Anderson, for, for being on the show. And I want to continue doing these, these episodes about history because I am definitely a history buff. And I think that there's much to be learned psychologically um, from history. And that's the reason for even including this on a podcast that really is about holistic health, because the past is such a big influence on psychology that it's impossible to go without talking about that. So that's why we're talking about it. So I hope you guys, um, hope you guys enjoyed and uh, thank Mr. Mr. Anderson from the matrix for speaking to us (laughs) about things that are important. Um, So thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, Bogs. And again, I look forward to speaking with you soon.